Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at VisitCalifornia.com. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today on Work in Progress, I am thrilled to share my conversation with an incredible and amazing wordsmith. He's adventurous, self-examining, and dedicated to evolving and helping others evolve as well. It feels incredibly timely as we look toward a new year. Today's guest is Mr. David White. David is an accomplished poet and associate fellow at Sade Business School at the University of Oxford. He grew up in Yorkshire to an Irish mother and an English father, and his love of poetry and the natural world started very early in his life. Rather than formally study poetry and literature, David took a different path and earned a degree in marine zoology after being inspired by Jacques Cousteau. He was a nature guide in the Galapagos Islands and led tours into the Himalaya, and all of his adventurous travels ended up leading him right back to poetry. David has published several books of poetry and prose, including The Bell and the Blackbird, Everything is Waiting for You, and The House of Belonging. He also has the unique credential of bringing poetry into the corporate world for the purpose of enhancing leadership. On today's episode, David and I discuss the robustness of vulnerability, being ravished by the natural world, and how sometimes you have to start undoing yourself in order to progress. We sat down via Zoom to share ideas about destiny, finding yourself, and how poetry is, in his words, the language against which we have no defenses. If you've been hoping to see a little more poetry in the world lately, this episode is definitely for you. David, I'm so excited that you've joined me on the podcast today. I'm I'm such a fan of your work, and I, I think even more of your way of looking at the world. And to be able to dig in with you over the next hour or so about where you find inspiration is something I'm really looking forward to. So thanks. My pleasure. Good to be speaking with you. Mm. There's, there's a place I would love to start as, 
as a fan of poetry and the planet and learning, which are three things that, that you study and teach so beautifully, um, I think there's really no way to avoid coming across your work. And there was something I read, you, you were interviewed about your collection, The Bell and the Blackbird, and the, the person interviewing you asked about this recurring meme in Irish poetry, yeah. the monk who, who stands and hears the bell calling him to prayer. And you went into the most beautiful answer about it. And you talked about the bell as a call to prayer, calling you to a greater context, to the one that you inhabit. And that the blackbird is the world calling to you as it finds you. Yeah. And you went in to speak about contemplation and, and the crossroads that people live in constantly, simultaneously. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that meme isn't just an Irish meme. It takes that particular Irish form. Um, Irish monasticism was so singular and so uh, particular uh, to that, to uh, Irish culture. But uh, it's really the, uh, the invitation in all of our great contemplative traditions to, uh, to live at, at the crossroads, the conversational crossroads, the invitational crossroads uh, between mm. going deeper, coming to ground, uh, getting below uh, the horizon of your personality and going out and meeting all the horizons of the world so that we're, we're actually not supposed to choose between them. Where, mm. uh, you know, uh, the human conversation is holding the conversation between the inner, what seems like the inner world and what seems like the outer world. And, uh, and in many ways, that's why it's so difficult. Uh, that's why it's so wonderful all at the same time. <laughs> Do so. you find in your practice of holding both worlds, does it get a bit easier or perhaps a bit more magical when you finally accept that two things that are quite different are true at the same time? Yes, I mean, um, I think uh, yes, and then a third quality is created out of it, um, just as you find in a in a marriage. Often, uh, the difficult parts of another person and the difficult parts of you are uh, can create something quite remarkable if they can be reconciled. You can apprentice yourself to one another in a way, mm. and. Uh, um, your ability to work with your own vulnerabilities, I think, gives you compassion for other people's vulnerabilities. And uh, I often feel with vulnerability, too, that uh, it's where you're open to the world, whether you want to be or not. And you could say it's also, it's also where the world is, is open to you. It just seems to find you in those moments, you know. We, you know, we talk about destiny for a human being, and I often feel that human beings always live out their destiny, but it, it, it just it depends upon the level at which you want to live out that conversation. You can live out your destiny from the point of view of complete frustration. It's still your destiny. It's still colored and the conversation. No one else can be as frustrated as you are <laughs> and in the way that you are. And uh, so it has your particular stamp on it, but you're, 
you're experiencing your des- your destiny only through the the quality of distance and the more you open yourself the more um vulnerable you make yourself but vulnerability not as weakness but as a different kind of robustness uh the more you have a chance of actually consummating that destiny of actually through many wonderful and often quite painful steps you know Mm. beginning to hold the conversation at deeper and deeper levels. I love that idea of vulnerability as robustness. Yes. Yeah, I have an essay I wrote uh, called Vulnerability, and uh, the first line it, it lines are really about the way vulnerability just isn't a choice. You, know, you, don't, uh, you think when you're younger that you have a choice about being vulnerable or not, but... Uh, the more uh, we go through the vicissitudes and difficulties of life and the humiliations of life, you know, the humiliations of relationship, the humiliations of being a mother or a father, the humiliations of being an artist, you know, where you mess up in public, uh, the more you realize that, um, and the humiliations of ill health, actually, um, of having difficulty, you know, with our own, uh, fiability and weakness. Um, the more we realize that uh, that we're creatures who are always vulnerable, and the only question is how, how you will inhabit that vulnerability. Will you inhabit as, as a wholehearted citizen of of grief and loss? The Irish know this very well. Yeah. Or you constantly try and abstract yourself out of your body in order not to feel these vulnerabilities and abstract yourself out of relationships with other people. You know, so we often won't have intimate relationships with other people or with ourselves mm. because of the because of the pain we've experienced through those intimate relationships. And hoping that you can have a good friendship without pain, hoping you can have a good, deep marriage or love relationship without humiliation and heartbreak. Hmm. And part of our maturity, I feel, is uh, is learning that uh, it's all approached through the doorway of, of uh, a kind of woundedness in a way hmm. that is, can be defined quite beautifully by being being the way, the place where you're open to the world, whether you want to be or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think about it to your point when you talk about as we, as we mature, we find ways to do this perhaps better. And I think about maturity as being marked by tenderness in people. I find that if we're willing to mature in a way where we remain open, we get more and more tender to others and to their experiences and yeah. and you're right there is no way to avoid vulnerability i i consider it but by this phrase let go or be dragged and i think about you're going you're going in that direction whether you want to go or not if you let go perhaps you surrender and then you have a tender experience and if you refuse to let go you'll be dragged and perhaps become one of those people you reference who is trying to escape themselves all of the time to avoid the feeling yes Yes. Now, we we meet at this moment where you have such 
beauty to share and wisdom to offer and, and, and the way that you do so in this conversation or in your work, in your writing, is so incredible to me. And I'm always curious when I sit with people who I admire who you were as a child because I wonder, as I hear the way you speak and your perspective on the world, my brain can't help but think, was he like this when he was 10? You know, who was David as a child? Can you paint a picture for us of of your life then? I, I know that you grew up in Yorkshire. I, I know that your mom was Irish. Were you spending a lot of time in Ireland? What what were you interested in as, as a child? Were you always curious about about words and people? Well, I was spending a lot of time in Ireland um, through my imagination and my mother's imagination. You know? mm-hmm. So I, I didn't tend to go over until I was later, until later in my teens. But, um, but it was ever present in our house through my mother's, uh, I, you know, the way my mother shaped her identity and her singing and storytelling and all the rest of it. Um, um, but I was, uh, I'd say I was, you know, I was quite a visionary child in a way when I look at that young boy. I was, I was quite ravished by the natural world. I could look at landscapes and skyscapes. And in Yorkshire and England, you know, because the, the um, weather systems are always changing, which is why people are talking about the weather all the time in Britain and Ireland. Mm. Um, you've got these great moving skies and the moors and, and woods and fields around where I grew up, these steep valleys. And uh, I was completely mesmerized by the world and I felt mesmerized by the world. And I wasn't, um, I wouldn't say I was very articulate about it, although I was writing from quite a young age, but I was reading a lot of very articulate people, uh, even from when I was quite young. And I was very lucky, lucky to have really, really good teachers, uh, both in sciences and in arts. And, and so I was schooled really well in, in, you know, the poetic tradition, which is very, very uh, rich in Britain, of course. And uh, I grew up, you know, not far from where the Bronte sisters uh, lived. Uh, they, were a, they were a big part of the way everyone looked at the moorlands and the, and the skyscapes and the landscape around us. Uh, I grew up not far from where Ted Hughes, the poet, grew up, and he had a very famous descriptive ability, you know, to bring the, to bring the wilder parts of that world alive. So I, uh, I felt very privileged to grow up in both in a, a rich family environment. Um, I mean, we weren't rich uh, financially, but we, it was a very rich inheritance from both Yorkshire and Ireland, and then a very, very rich landscape, and, and uh, a marvellous school, a series of marvellous schools and teachers that I went to. I was just very lucky that way. Hmm. Yeah. Do you remember, when, when you think back on that time period, all of the things you were reading and when you began writing... Did you have a favorite poem as a child? My favorite poem was was also the most terrifying poem that I read at that time, and that was uh, Coleridge's The Ancient Mariner. 
uh, don't know if you know, it's the classic piece. It, it was an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three by the long gray beard and scrawny hand. Why, for thou stoppest me. And uh, the ancient mariner, of course, is an old sailor who is uh, stopping these three wedding guests on the way to the wedding, and they can hear the wedding in the background and the, and the celebrations and everything, but they're so mesmerized by his story that they cannot go on. And so the wedding proceeds without them while the ancient mariner tells them about his harrowing tale of his voyage into the nether regions of the world. And I read that poem accompanied by these engravings done by a French engraver called Doré. They're the most famous engravings that go with Coleridge's poem. And, uh, and I was terrified by it and mesmerized at the same time. So I really realized the impact, you know, I felt like a passing hawk had come past, sunk its claws into me and then carried me off into the sky <laughs> when I read The Ancient Mariner. And so I felt abducted by poetry and ravished by the natural world. Um, and, uh, and at the same t time, I was uh, a local kid, you know, running around with all my mates and getting in fights <laughs> and building dens in the fields and all the rest. So. So um, it wasn't an abstracted, lonely childhood, but I, I had this, this very powerful and singular relationship with the natural world. Singular also in the sense that I would go off by myself quite, quite a lot. And I was, I was quite, uh, <clears throat> quite competent later on to find that Wordsworth, uh, William Wordsworth, the great poet from the Lake District, not far from Yorkshire, spent a lot of time alone as a child too in the in the mountains so some of us are some of us are just made that way mm -hmm. uh, so i was that i was that boy who uh liked to go off by himself into the woods and fields and on the moor mm -hmm. uh, spend time i just met him yeah. i remember having such a feeling of kinship listening to an interview of mary oliver's where she spoke about her daily routine and how early she'd get up and just go out and explore and look around and observe nature. And it's not lost on me that so many of my favorite poems and wordsmiths take time to observe the magic in the world around us. And then you, you describe it in such a way as being carried off by, you know, a great bird of prey. That feeling feels familiar to me, though I don't think I've ever described anything in that way before. Yes, yes. And it and 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 you say especially as it pertains to that phrase that it was this story of the mariner that did it to you which makes me feel a bit giddy because you wound up getting a degree in marine zoology. And yes, and I'm yes. I'm so curious, you know, through through your childhood and your schooling and as you mentioned, you know, being out with mates and and playing and doing all of the things that boys in the wilderness do. What was it that led you from this poetic space? I, I imagine the, the fascination with the natural world had much to do with it. it into marine zoology, how, how did you end up choosing that path? Yes. Well, first of all, it is interesting. I've never put the two things together of being mesmerized by the ancient mariner and, uh, and then finding myself <laughs> sailing in the Galapagos Islands for, yeah. 
um, working as a naturalist there. But uh, they a modern a modern mariner, if you will. I suppose so. Yeah, although I, <laughs> I had a slightly more comfortable time than he did. But uh, although I had my own uh, my own harrowing experiences too. Um, well, it was another form of entrancement, and that was with uh, seeing Jacques Cousteau, the famous French marine zoologist. Um, and, uh, he was also an innovator in the diving world. He, he invented the, uh, the aqualung and the regulator through which you breathe. So, uh, and his series of programs on the television when I was young uh, really captured my imagination. And I thought it was quite astonishing that you could actually have work like this in the world where you could follow the life of the dolphin aboard the good ship Calypso. That was the name of his ship. And uh, so I, uh, I decided that uh, I could always read a book of John Donne or uh, Emily Dickinson or William Wordsworth. Uh, I didn't need anyone to teach me how to do that. But I did need someone to teach me uh, biochemistry and the Krebs cycle and, <laughs> and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I put myself into sciences, knowing, knowing that I could always write, I would always, and I would always read uh, literature, uh, but I needed some help in sciences. And then I started to uh, think seriously um, about the sea and the ocean, which I'd also al always loved, uh, coming out of, this, out of this entrancement through Jacques Cousteau. And then... Uh, things came together in a very remarkable and coincidental way in North Wales, where I went to university and, and through a, uh, through a series of, a series of, uh, of really remarkable events and help both visible and invisible. I, uh, I found myself, um, in the Galapagos islands in, in a complete surprise, you know, six weeks before, I was there. I had no idea that my life was going to be <laughs> heading in that direction. But, um, yeah, so I got the most remarkable uh, luck of the Irish job. And, uh, and Galapagos became my home for, for over a year. Yes. What was it like? It's it's one of those places that in my head feels so romantic and raw and vibrant. And I, I just am, how, how did you wind up there? And, and what were you doing? You know, you said you had your own harrowing tales yes. uh, being there. What, what was that like? Well, I mean, Galapagos are romantic only in the sense of imagining yourself adventuring to go there. Uh, they're actually very, very wild, very, very austere, and very, very fierce uh, set of environments. Uh, um, you know, the, um, the, the edge between life and death is very, very thin there. And uh, when you live there and when you study the animals and when you, you, uh, you witness alongside them, you're, you're witness to a lot of... Uh, of living and dying uh, creatures, many creatures that you get to know as individuals, you know, we're, we're not quite aware of it, but every creature in the wild has just as much individual character as, uh, as a human being has an individual human being. As you get to know them, they all have different behaviors and, and different mannerisms. And so you'd actually get, uh, you'd ac actually, you know, many, 
animals, although they were wild, you would visit them uh, in certain places. And because they have no fear of humankind, you'd get to know them quite well. And then you would find them dead on the beach uh, on, when you came back um, on one time or another. Um, and um, or you'd actually witness them being killed by other creatures. So, so the the land environment's very fierce. The 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 environment underwater is very fair, very fierce, especially when you're there. To begin with, uh, there are you know six or seven different species of shark, and uh, before you understand their behaviours and and are able to identify sharks in which which ones are dangerous and which aren't and at what time are they dangerous and when are they not. The, uh, you know, the whole environment can actually seem completely and utterly anti-human. Um, so uh, it takes some settling in uh, in order to really, um, really feel at home in Galapagos as a human being. We're just visitors there. Having said that, it's just, I mean, it's one of, it is one of the most remarkable places in the world. Funnily enough, just this morning, I was looking up on the internet to see what effect the virus uh, uh, was having on the islands. And of course, all of the visiting and all of the boats, uh, including the boats I used to work on, um, have stopped. Um, so I'm sure all the animals and birds are getting a great rest from everyone although the place was well organized and uh, uh, for minimum impact, you know, despite a high number of people. But it is one of the most remarkable places on the world, in the world, but very, very fierce indeed. When you're there, you get a sense of what the world was like uh, before human beings evolved, never mind took over creation. So, so uh, it's quite disturbing from that point of view, if you really... Wow attention yeah in in your time there and and i know you spent time in the amazon as well what what was your work you know you mentioned being on boats what what is the experience of working in those environments yes i was a naturalist guide a guia naturalista for the uh, for the national park and for the company that employed me you you had this strange work relationship of working for both the National Park and for the people who actually paid your wages. And no one, no one can visit any of the islands or any of the visiting parts of the islands without being in the company of a guia naturalista. And, uh, and, and so uh, you're a kind of policeman or woman, uh, but you, you do all your best policing through educating. You know, if you really teach about the the both robustness and fragility of the place and not carrying things away and not disturbing nesting birds and everyone gets it. You know? And, uh, so, um, um, it was really, you know, I was privileged to spend hours every morning and every afternoon. And then from the boat also paying attention to, uh, animals and birds and landscapes that were other than myself. So in many ways, it was like a two-year meditation retreat um, in the sense that you were constantly paying attention in silence to this astonishing creation that we're a part of. So it was very, very, very transformative that way. And... Um, and uh, absolutely remarkable as a 
as a, a place of apprenticeship, I would say, to the to poetry and the writing of poetry in the poetic tradition, although I wrote very little when I was actually there, but as a, yeah, as an apprenticeship into deeper states of attention from which you then speak, it was, it was a marvelous, marvelous place. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that was perhaps your biggest takeaway or observation from that time period in your life? The, the way to pay attention, the way to sit in reverence? Yes. Um, it, it, it was uh, very participative. It wasn't just sitting because um, you were having to, you were having to um, help navigate and stand watch on these sailing boats. At that time, we had no GPS. Um, it was pre-GPS. Um, there were no navigation lights in the islands. And all of the sailing was done by night. So we had lots of adventures and lots of near misses sailing in the dark between these islands, you know, and you did it nonstop. So anything that can go wrong at sea will go wrong. And many things did. Uh, so lots of near drownings, lots of uh, um, close shaves, and, uh, and always uh, working with this fierce element called the sea or the ocean, whether you were on it or trying to get ashore through the through the uh, the surf, you know, boats turning over on the beach when you were trying to get people ashore and uh, uh, bitten by things and poisoned by things. <laughs> and, uh, oh my goodness! So uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a, a really actively reverent time. <laughs> it was. Uh, it was uh, a sense of, it was, uh, you know, it was great being a young man or woman there because it was very re- robustly embracing. Yeah. Mm. Yes. And how did you make a shift from that type of work into writing? What, what was it that made you decide you were ready for a next adventure? Yeah, so I was reading the whole time I was there. I had a shelf full of poetry that I'd taken with me. I got to know those poets very, very well indeed, you know. There was no internet in those days. Um, so um, I uh, uh, I read a lot of John Donne, which I had with me at the time. It just happened to be one of the books I flung in my bag at the last moment. So, And then other books that, other, that uh, uh, travelers would bring on board. And uh, so I was always keeping my poetic identity alive, you could say. But I wasn't writing at all. Um, um, And uh, I had the choice to stay on in Galapagos because uh, we were needed as guide. Trained guides were hard to come by. And uh, But at the end of my time there, I decided... I could stay if I wanted, and I would have a remarkable life, but it would be it would be the Peter Pan life of never actually growing up uh, that I knew there were other forms of maturity of apprenticeship of exploration which had to do with my work in the world, whatever the for, full form that fully took you know. So I left and uh, traveled off through South America with my then girlfriend, Quebecois woman, hmm. and, um, and had a very traumatic time of it, actually, because I was very happy, very robust, very healthy, 
on top of the world and completely competent in the Galapagos Islands. And then I went through this kind of undoing when I left the islands. Um, I went through this incredible vulnerability physically. Um, I went through some strange kind of physiological illness where I couldn't eat and I started shedding the pounds. And, um, and I went through a kind of uh, molting phase, you know, of, of suddenly being strangely, feeling strangely incompetent in the world, yeah. Um, from being absolutely competent in, in Galapagos. Uh, and it was allied with this breakdown in my body that was occurring. Um, and that was allied with the, that uh, then of, of course created difficulty in my relationship. So I had the breakdown of my body, the breakdown of my self-identity and the breakdown of the relationship all happening at once as we traveled through Peru and Bolivia. And yeah, and then I said, said goodbye to um, my partner uh, in, in uh, Machu Picchu, you know, Machu Picchu, uh, very romantic place to say goodbye. Mm. And, um, and then uh, I made my way back via California, uh, where I lived on a goat farm for six weeks, <laughs> milking goat. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, in Santa Rosa, yeah. and, uh, and then made my way back to Britain. Yeah, so uh, where uh, uh, I uh, tried to adapt to the northern winter, having lived for two years on the equator in a pair of shorts and you know, a t-shirt. So, uh. so it was all all good for me, but uh, quite difficult times after I left Galapagos. I imagine. Yes, and it and it strikes me because I think about some of the work that you do now, this, this world of conversational leadership and, and, and you speak so much about adaptability. How do you think you began to find your way back to yourself at that point to, to adapt? Well, um, you know, I had to, I lived through um, the winter in North Wales where I'd gone to university I mean, I did go back to Yorkshire and see my family and everything, but North Wales was my kind of spiritual home at the time. But it was very difficult. I mean, a, a wet Welsh winter is quite difficult to live through after living in the tropics. And I woke up one morning with the notion that I should go to India. And uh, at that stage in my life, I always moved very quickly. And within a few days, I was on my way to India. And uh, the intuition was really good because, uh, first of all, it took me to India, but more importantly, it then took me to Nepal and the Himalayas. Um, <clears throat> I had a series of absolutely incredible and remarkable um, invitational experiences in those mountains. Yeah. We, you know, it's the classic voyage to the Himalayas, you know, to find yourself. And it actually worked for me. <laughs> at, at, uh, and uh, through, uh, you know, through adventuring uh, in the mountains and through getting really sick and through almost dying of amoebic dysentery, uh, 10,000 up in the Tibetan areas of Nepal, and then um, uh, walking out back by myself, um, 
I really turned my right life around and I, I had a sense of, of um, a kind of soul adventure that I was on, a really palpable sense of the soul adventure that I was following. I feel that the essence of that, what what adventure lies ahead or the potential of it, when I read one of my favorite pieces that you've written, which is What to Remember When Waking. Yes. And you talk about that. It, it's, it's a, as you mentioned about the Galapagos, it's, it's almost a razor's edge between two worlds. Yes. And, and while it isn't life and death, it's, it's that dreaming and waking. It's, it's the other dimension that we touch um, in a different kind of consciousness and, and the place we might go today. That moment seems hyper precious to me in, in a time like this. You know, yeah. being being on the precipice of possibility, I'm I'm curious. Do you, do you think that that adventure in the Himalaya did that inform a perspective like that one? Well, I suppose you know the poems about um, really being present at the threshold between your sleep and suddenly coming back into the world. Uh, suddenly opening out into this consciousness uh, that we take as the everyday, but which isn't everyday at all. It's absolutely miraculous and remarkable. And uh, your sleep has, has enabled you to reimagine yourself in it and to relearn what you're involved with. Yeah. So I, I suppose you could say there were lots of... Uh, lots of experiences in, in the Himalayas around that, uh, around that waking. Uh, there's one uh, poem called Muktinath uh, about waking in the morning um, before uh, leading a group of people over a very high pass. This is from a, this is from a, um, a much later trip after my first trip to the Himalayas when I, and then I returned and took people on on uh, treks, I suppose, through the, the mountains and waking one morning before going over the Throng La Pass, which is 18,000 feet. And when you're at 18,000 feet, things can go very, very wrong. You're on a kind of knife edge uh, uh, of survivability. And when you have a group, it's all magnified by the number of people you have. The, the more people you have, the more chances there are of things going wrong. So waking into that morning when we were first setting up the pass was waking into a, a really powerful sense of responsibility that I wasn't, wasn't necessarily fully ready for. You know, uh, we talk about the power of leadership and the power of responsibility, but we don't talk about as much about the vulnerability of leadership. Yeah. So, so this is the piece, it's called, I think I can remember, remember it, it's uh, Muktinath. Dawn at Muktinath, and, and I look through the window. White mountains and the solid slopes of snow. Cold scent of pine and the raven call of blackbirds circling upward toward nothing. Dawn at Muktinath, and I look through the window. White mountains and the steady slopes of snow. 
cold scent of pine and the raven call of blackbirds circling upward toward nothing. So the breath escapes the mouth. So the breath escapes the mouth, spiraling in a cold room. So the words leave our lips, the first line of a long poem with no courage to finish. So the lines leave our lips, the first lines of a long poem with no courage to finish. This is the, pay, this is the place the path begins. The empty room beneath the breath where everything we've broken comes back to be repaired. Mm. This is the place we stop, look up, um, see a, hear a child crying. Ah, I've just lost the last part of it now. Um, the first lines of a long poem with no courage to finish. This is the pay, place the path begins. The empty room beneath the breath where everything we've broken comes back to repaired, where bitterness returns, turns to a final sourness, sourness on the lime-washed walls and disappears. This is the place we stop, look out the window. Beneath us, a child is crying, while above, a tight arrow of driven ponies points the way to the high pass. Yeah. And I, I did actually have that experience of looking out the window, saying, oh, my God, I, I've got to lead everyone up there. Yeah. Uh, this path that disappeared up into the, the wastes, you know, of <laughs> uh, 20,000 feet. And, uh, and I heard this child crying beneath me, and I saw this arrow of Tibetan ponies being driven up the hillside at the same time. And, uh, of course, that was exactly, exactly the conversation I was involved with, was, was the child, you know, the part of you that wants to be taken care of by the world. Yeah. And the world, uh, literally in the form of an arrow, inviting you out of yourself and beyond yourself, yeah beyond what you feel you could do. And the ability to hold those two qualities together, I think, is, is actually part of leadership. If you have no relationship with the crying child in you, then you have no compassion for people who work with you or for you when they get frightened. Yeah. And, you, and perhaps even more importantly, you can't recognize when they're frightened. Uh, so you can't help them, or you can't get others to help them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so lots of different forms of waking into the world. And the interesting thing is throughout our life, we never stop disappearing and then waking back into the world. You, know, you do it when you're, when you're an infant, three days old, you do it. <laughs> you do it when you're 90 years old. Yeah. So always disappearing, always waking again. And it's always... It's interesting to think that we might be doing that ourselves too mm. in in every part of our lives yeah. mm-hmm. well that that ebb and flow that cycle it's tidal really. Thank you for sharing that. That was really just so so beautiful. Thank you It, it relates so much to the conversation we were having earlier about vulnerability you know do you surrender to it do do you open yourself to experiencing yourself fully including the 
the pain or the fear or the loss, the things we so often are encouraged to turn away from. Yeah. If, if, if you can become more whole, you can see others more wholly. And yeah. so when you, when you relate that to leadership, what, what can you tell us about conversational leadership? Because you work on this now. You apply these philosophies to working with people in leadership positions with, with companies. And I wish there was more of this energy in those spaces. So how did that begin? And, and what is it that you're teaching these leaders to do? Well, um, <clears throat> that's a very, very big topic. But, um, yeah. um, you know, one, one immediate thing I can think of is that when I'm talking about conversational leadership, I'm often, you could just as well say invitational leadership. Because when you think about it, if you've ever had a boss, or I suppose in your case as an actress, a, an actor, a, a director, you know, one of the first things you're looking for in leadership from that person is 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 their invitation. You want to know what what invitation is this person making to me. Yeah. And one of the existential disappointments around leadership is when you find they're making absolutely no invitation at all to you. <laughs> you know, they're so caught up in their own lives and in their own defensive postures and they're so afraid or that they actually aren't making any invitation to you at all. And that's, that's one of the most dispiriting things in the workplace. Yeah. And, uh, and then it's interesting to ask the question, why is it so difficult for all of us to make invitations actually? And, well, because it's actually one of the ultimate forms of vulnerability. When you make an invitation to someone else, they will always respond in a much larger way than you had first imagined when you made your invitation, you know. And, you know, that's true in the intimacies of, uh, of a love relationship. It's also true in an organizational sense. Uh, you you make a heartfelt invitation, it will always come back to you in a way that breaks apart the identity that first made the invitation and started the conversation. Um, so that really is an invitation not only to understanding, but to self-understanding. You have to actually, <clears throat> to be a good leader, you have to apprentice yourself to yourself. You, you have to find out where you're afraid of the world. Uh, you have to find out where you're reluctant to have the conversation, where you're not very good and where other people might be better than you. You've only got one pair of eyes, one pair of ears, one pair of hands as a person and one intellect and imagination. If you're in an organization, you're surrounded by dozens of ears and eyes and hands and intellects and imaginations, yeah. There are many of those eyes that see better than you do in certain directions. Yeah? In other directions, you see better than them. But you try to bring in a ecology of qualities. Yeah? And so this is where you have to be big. Yeah? And uh, you know, one of the things we notice in our present political leadership is the lack of generosity and bigness. You know. Mm -hmm. so, 
just the inability even ever to admit that you might be wrong uh, or that you might have got something wrong um, or that you need other people in order to to do something well and competently. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so, isn't it in... Yeah. Isn't it interesting because we do know that as humans we need other people. We evolved in a village, we evolved in an ecosystem to your point and and I love that the the observation you make in in your verbiage there goes back to your earlier work as as a scientist because it's true. Every living organism in an ecosystem has a place and has yeah. a purpose and it it really reminds me that I was so lucky to to work for a boss early in my career. I, I worked for this lovely executive producer on a television series who directed a lot of our episodes. Yes. And I, I was shadowing him as a director to prepare for my first foray into directing. And I was asking him about what his biggest realizations have been. And he, he said to me, my career as a leader changed when I realized the best idea always wins. And he said, whether that's my idea, your idea, the idea of the dolly grip or the third electrician, yes. the best idea always has to win because this is a team sport. Marvelous. Yeah. And that's a great example. Yes. Mm. Mm. So is, th is that part of what you work on when, when you're encouraging leaders to be bigger, when you're reminding them that true leadership requires generosity? Are, are yes. you asking them to get vulnerable or perhaps teaching them how to do so in the workplace? Well, I do it through my art form, which is poetry. So I use poetry just as much in the organizational world as I do anywhere else. And so the, the physicality of the poem um, creates the experience in the room. You're not talking about it in the abstract. So I often... Um, my job is to actually create a hunger to want to have the conversation. Um, and that's half the battle. If you can set that hunger for the conversation up, especially in men, um, they get quite excited about having these courageous and difficult conversations. And I do work with what I call the phenomenology of conversation, which is just a fancy way of saying what happens along the way when you try to have one. Uh, and I've, identified these seven steps. Um, and that's the book I'm writing at this very desk right now, actually, is uh, called A Timeless Way, Seven Steps for Deepening Any Conversation. And uh, they're steps, they're timeless steps, but I've kind of uncovered them in and put them in a, in a sequence, I suppose. Hmm. Thank goodness, because I was yeah. about to say, how do we learn? And I'm thrilled that you're writing a book about this. And do you, want when, to know the, do you want to know what the first step is? I would love to know what the first step is. The first step in deepening the conversation is to stop having the one you're having now. <laughs> Just to stop it, yeah. So, and create a relationship with silence, yeah. So, uh, and on it goes mm. from there, yeah. Hmm. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. When you talk about setting the space with a poem, using your art form to encourage this, which truly does, it stops any kind of, you know, quote, workplace conversation these people are having. And you put them in their heart. You put people in their bodies with poetry. You put them in, in a more open emotional state. 
it, it happened to me when you read that poem to me just a moment ago. I, I lost my place. I, it took me a second to recover and figure out what question I wanted to ask you next. What do you think it is that makes a great poem? Why do you think they affect us that way? Mm. Well, I always say uh, one of my definitions of poetry is that it's language against which we have no defenses. Yeah. It's like when you just say something exactly right to someone, you've been trying to say it to them for years, and finally you say it at exactly the right moment, in exactly the right way, with exactly the right rhythm and cadence, and they hear it. Hmm. Uh, and you know they've heard it. Yeah. Uh, that's poetry, yeah. Um, you've actually probably fallen into iambic pentameter. You've actually probably got a chorus in there where you've repeated yourself a couple of mm-hmm. times, you know. Um, poetry is not abstracted art form language. It's the way human beings speak on their emotional and intellectual edge. So you'll often, mm. hear, you'll often hear poetic diction in a good marital argument, you know. Uh, mm. Yeah, emphasis, repetition. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and uh, a voice, you know, that's discovering what it's saying as it's going along, you know, mm. discovering that it knows something. And, you know, in the best marital argument, both sides of the argument hear something new. And once it's said, then the marriage can't go back to where it was before because it's being said, yeah. You've actually emancipated in yourself into a new articulation and a new level of understanding, and that's mm. exactly the same, uh, exactly the same dynamic in the writing of poetry. You're trying to overhear yourself say something you didn't know you knew, and it's couched in a way, often in a very beautiful way, where it just pierces you and carries you off. Yeah, um, the language has just taken you and and uh, got you just beyond yourself here. That might, mm. This might be a good place to finish with the poem, actually. Yeah. I would love that. I've, I've yes. got one last question for you, and we can, yes. we can do that now, or we can uh, do that at the very end. But maybe it's better that I ask you now, and then we finish exactly. the very end yeah. with your words. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So my, my favorite and final question that I get to ask everyone is, uh, as you know, the, the podcast is called Work in Progress. Yes. I'm always curious with my guests, when you hear the phrase, be it personal or professional, what is it that triggers in your brain? What, what comes up for you as a work in progress in your life right now? A work in progress, yeah. Mm. Um, well, um, I, there's two things come to mind. One is um, the kind of inner exploration and the uh, the quarantine and the lockdown is very good for me at the moment. I'm sitting, you know, I sat Zen for many years. It's a chapter of my life we, d- we didn't speak about today. But uh, so I'm getting back on the black cushion every day. And that's a powerful magnifier of, uh, of inner exp- exploration and dropping, dropping below the verbal in, into this formless... Uh, but incredibly present state. 
Well, that's very exciting at the moment for me. That feels like uh, wonderful work uh, that I've returned to, but that is it really progressing in a very, very powerful and magnified way. And then the other uh, working progress is this uh, uh, this book, conversational. You know, these seven steps for deepening any conversation. And I just feel like I've got to the place where I just want to write it in an incredibly simple way. So it's rather than it being a work of art on my part, although hopefully it will be, it's just something that is absolutely clear and helpful to people. So, um, so I'm quite excited about the kind of invitation to radical simplicity in, in, uh, in the writing of that book at the moment. Yeah. So exciting. All right. Lovely. And if there is a poem you'd like to uh, give us in parting, I would love that. And if that doesn't feel right, that's okay too. Yes, I'll. Um, this seemed to follow on from uh, from the uh, a question earlier, mm. just about getting over yourself. And <laughs> um, I think one of the uh, one of the difficulties in life is that uh, when we get very competent at something, we start to actually go into a dynamic of impersonation after a while. Mm. We, get so we get so used to being that competent person, whether it's a competent style of poetry or a competent musician or a competent style of acting. Or, mm. And in order to progress, you have to kind of undo yourself. Um, mm. And... Uh, you you don't realize it, but you've started this process of impersonation. And the the impersonation is incredibly subtle because you're actually impersonating yourself and you don't realize it. So, <laughs> mm. so but actually you've you've actually moved on, but you don't know you but you don't really know that you've moved on. Uh, so so this is an invitation, it's called just beyond yourself. Mm. To that place, yeah. Just beyond yourself. Just beyond yourself. It's where you need to be. Just beyond yourself. It's where you need to be. Half a step into self-forgetting and the rest restored by what you'll meet. Just beyond yourself. It's where you need to be. Half a step into self-forgetting and the rest restored by what you'll meet. There's a road always beckoning. There's a road always beckoning. When you see the two sides of it closing together at that far horizon and deep in the foundations of your own heart at exactly the same time, that's how you know it's where you have to go. That's how you know it's the road you have to follow. That's how you know it's just beyond yourself. It's where you need to be. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Ben Brilliant Anatomy.